This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhume.org. From KVPR in Fresno. On this week's The Other California, the legacy of a family who left India 50 years ago and ended up creating a cultural oasis right here in the valley. If that doesn't show courage, I don't know what does. You can move into a different country, don't even know anything about it, it's courage. And farming with nature in mind. I have a saying above my computer that reads, if you take care of the birds, you take care of most of the big problems in the world. It's all about working hard for the next generation as we head to the small rural town of Livingston in Merced County. I'm Alice Daniel, and this is... El Otro California. I live in California. 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 I live in Other California. The service inside the Livingston United Methodist Church is just ending. About 20 people are gathering up their things and loosely singing the last verse of the hymn, Pass It On. Some start to walk out of the chapel, and as I follow, one man welcomes me and quietly quips that the congregation is getting on in age. He's in his 70s, he says, and he's one of the youngest in the group. I laugh because I'm here to meet someone who's been alive for almost a century, a 97-year-old Japanese-American farmer who has attended this rural church set among almond orchards his entire life. But before I find Sherman Kishi, let me tell you why this church is unique. Its history begins with the Issei, first-generation Japanese immigrants who came to Livingston around 1907 to join an agricultural community called Yamato, or Japanese colony. The farmers built their own packing shed and started a co-op. It later merged with another farmers association to show unity after World War II. There was an understanding with the town that these newcomers would stick to farming and not compete with commercial businesses. The founder of Yamato colony, Kiyutaro Abiko, was Christian, and the church was the community's anchor, the center of much social life. It still is, although the demographics have changed and the church we're in now isn't the original structure. After the service, I find Sherman sitting on a bench in the main hall, eating his lunch. There are sandwiches and homemade cakes on a table nearby. You can tell he's loved here as people come by to say hello and check on him. So Sherman said his, his caregiver is coming to pick him up. I sit down and ask him about growing up here. We really stayed separate from the townspeople, and uh, we didn't go to church together with them or anything, so... Sherman tells me he grew up just across the street from the church, in a house where his daughter now lives. When Sherman was a kid, his family farmed grapes. They had various varieties of grapes, and they used to, I guess they used to market that into the Bay Area mostly. Uh -huh. By 1940, about 70 Japanese families were farming more than 3,700 acres in Livingston. These days, the farmers here are a more diverse group, 
But some of the original families, like Sherman's, remain. The church itself is a mix of people whose family histories include places like Lebanon, India, and Europe. The minister's family is from Korea. <laughs> yeah, we have all kinds of people. Well, that's nice that we have all kinds of people now. All kinds of people. It mirrors Livingston itself, a town of about 14,000 that celebrates its diversity with larger-than-life steel cutouts or sculptures in town of people representing various immigrant groups who have made contributions. Livingston, by the way, was named for a celebrity, Dr. David Livingston, a missionary and explorer known for his anti-slavery stance. Even as Yamato Colony was thriving in 1940, World War II changed everything. In 1942, the residents were sent away by the U.S. government to concentration camps. The church was actually the first place they gathered as they were rounded up, Sherman says. We were all taken in from this area right here because this was our main church at the time. And uh, we went from here to the, to the assembly center in, in Merced. The assembly center at the fairgrounds, built in 11 days, where thousands stayed for several months. After that, they were sent to a concentration camp called Amachi in Grenada, Colorado. Yeah, we had no choice whatsoever whether we wanted to go or not. And uh, we, were, we were just taken out and uh, sent, to the, sent to the camp that we went to. Sherman was 17. He remembers what the camp was like. All built of barracks, yeah. There were, there were hundreds of barracks, and I don't remember how many barracks there were, but there were a lot of them. But by the end of 1943, he was recruited to go to language school in Minnesota. He knew some Japanese, but not enough. And supposedly I learned the Japanese language there. <laughs> well, I knew a little bit, just enough to talk to my folks and things, but nothing, nothing at all sophisticated. After that, he was sent to the Philippines for a few months. It was Allied translators and interpreters section. But you know, that's interesting. I, I don't remember doing any translating or interpreting. <laughs> he says his youth played in his favor during the war, that it was much harder on his parents, who were stuck in the camp for three years. My father was not well. He, was, he had, uh, I guess they call it Bright disease, kidney, a kidney problem. He required a special diet that Sherman's mother used to make for him, but not while he was in the camp. People ate whatever was served in the mess halls. Sherman says his father died shortly after he returned to Livingston. After the war, Sherman attended UC Berkeley, where he was a wildlife conservation major, and he married a woman he knew well. They grew up together in Yamato Colony. June died two years ago. How long were you married? 74 years. <laughs> yes, it was a long time we were together. Fortunately, the farm remained in the family after the war, as did most farms in Yamato Colony. A land manager had been hired to oversee many of the properties. Sherman says he grew almonds here for decades. No, I don't even remember when we stopped farming. It must have been I must have been about 
getting close to 90 years old when we stopped. That was only seven years ago. Before Sherman gets up to leave, I ask him what coming to this church for so many years means to him. His reply? Sort of like coming home. (laughs) Coming home. The bonds in what was Yamato Colony still run deep here. Like Sherman, Gino Cooey has been coming to this church for decades. She plays the piano here most Sundays, although on this day, her granddaughter sat in. On another day, I catch up, or at least try to, with Jean at her farm, just down the road from the church. Jean walks really fast. Jean, you have to wait for me. She's moving through the rows of her almond orchard like, excuse my French, a bat out of hell. And I, meanwhile, keep getting entangled in branches that grab onto me. I know, right? Okay. I'm trying to keep my mic on her so I can record what she's saying. But my headphone cord is caught on a limb, and she's a couple yards ahead of me. Wait, wait, wait. I have to have the mic on you because it won't pick you up otherwise. Jean moves fast, works fast, drives fast, and talks fast. She's almost 82 in years, but in spirit, she's young. We're walking from her 900-square-foot straw bale house through the orchard to a farmhouse where her daughter now lives with her family. It was built in 1920, and it's called the Okui Mansion in a book about Yamato Colony, a book that Sherman's niece wrote, by the way. Jean's husband, Paul, was born and raised here. And he and his three siblings um, all went to school here until World War II. When they, like Sherman's family, were forced to leave the farm and assemble at the Merced Fairgrounds before being transferred to the concentration camp in Colorado. Paul was nine years old. And uh, then they were put in a train. They had to keep the blinds down on the car, in the cars so they couldn't see where they were going. Jean is not Japanese, and she's not from Livingston originally. She and Paul met through music in Santa Barbara. I know there was a party going on. There was a suspicion and a spell. She was with the feeling, moving and a rocking and a They played and sang in a trio, whatever was popular on the radio. Splish Splash by Bobby Darin, or a polka for dancing. They were living in Montecito, California in 1980 when Paul's brother died. That's when they moved back to run the farm, Jean says. And I taught piano in the home there and uh, went from that to driving a tractor. And I learned a lot about farming because I thought if I'm going to farm, I better know what, what to expect. Jean took a class in orchard and vineyard management, and she did the majority of the farming because Paul had Parkinson's disease. He felt very comfortable here. He knew all the people and all of the Japanese-American farmers around us. They said, we'll do anything to help you. And I remember one year we had our nuts all in a row be picked up, and they couldn't pick them up yet. And it rained, and we had to spread them all out. We had five tractors show up to help us. It's just amazing, you know. The farmers often work together like that. Paul died in 2001, and Jean ran the farm alone for several years before her daughter and son-in-law took over. Jean says she really took to farming, and she puts a lot of thought into being a good steward of the land. The farm runs on solar, and 14 years ago, she got a conservation easement so the farm can't be developed. Mookie Cha is a Japanese name for barley tea. 
back inside her straw bale house, which she says stays cool even in the hot summers, Jean sets out two glasses of tea. It's popular in the summertime, she tells me, as she offers some lemon from her lemon tree. Thank you. You're good. Tie in the nature. (laughs) She's laughing at her attempt to tie in the barley tea with the land around her, lemons from her tree. But it's a theme that deeply matters to her. We're all connected, as I think a lot of people don't think they're part of the the system in in, uh, nature, but we all are. And I have a saying above my computer that reads, if you take care of the birds, you take care of most of the big problems in the world. She also has a sign that says, Lord, slow me down. I've got a reputation of being, what do they call it, the something bunny. Energizer. (laughs) Yeah, Energizer Bunny. I've got that as a nickname with several people because I just keep going. She's worked with all kinds of land preservation groups, Valley Land Alliance, American Farmland Trust, and on and on. And right now, she needs to head to a meeting in nearby Merced to talk about sustainable groundwater management. She shuts her door and goes into a teachable moment about the cycle of life. I will get returned. (laughs) I'll be... Made, hopefully made into compost or something. Dead things provide carbon and food, and that makes room for new life. I can't help but laugh, and maybe I shouldn't, but I tell her... I don't think you're going to die anytime soon. <laughs> I don't, you never know. You never know, but I mean, not, not from old age. <laughs> and then Jean gets in her car to head to her meeting in Merced. I follow her out the driveway in my own car, but I don't even try to keep up. She's left me in the dust. Just as a church was the center of Yamato Colony, two temples serve another community in Livingston. In this next story, reporter Carrie Klein introduces us to a whole diaspora that settled here in the last 50 years, starting with one single family. Carrie, come in, please. Please, please. Gurpal Samra is welcoming as he motions me into his living room, where we sit on cushy couches across from a luminous blue fish tank. He's easy to talk to, which makes sense. He used to be mayor. He tells me it happened almost by accident. The story starts back in the 90s. My brother got a parking ticket. A $10 ticket. Wrongful, apparently. Kripal went to the chief of police, then the city council, to contest it. They won't listen, so I said, I'm going to fix their wagon and run for council. He was elected in 1998, though he never did manage to toss out his brother's ticket. But in one of his first acts, he ended the system that allows mayors to be appointed by the city council, instead putting the vote up to residents. And then he ran. So that's how we became the first elected mayor in Livingston. That was in 2002. He would bounce between the city council and mayor's office for the next 18 years until his retirement. In order to be an elected official, it helps to be a people person. And I think I'm a, a people person. In 2020, while he was still mayor, he was instrumental in getting information to the public about a deadly COVID outbreak at the town's biggest employer, a foster farm's chicken processing plant. The company initially concealed the fact that nine employees had died. But politics was never Gurpal's endgame, especially in the U.S. He wasn't born here. 
He's a Sikh, or Sikh as it's sometimes pronounced, from the Indian state of Punjab. And by the time he became mayor, the city had known Indians for only 30 years. Here we are, immigrants from India moving to Livingston and have the Livingstonians allow us, or especially me, the opportunity to serve them in an elected position. If that doesn't tell what the community is like, I'm not sure what else will. As a relative newcomer, his run in city politics might seem brave, but Gurpal will never admit that because he feels he knows real bravery, and that was modeled to him by his parents. Fifty years ago, they left behind everything they knew and moved here, to Livingston, where no one else looked like them. It was only four Indians here. My father, my mother, my brother, and myself. Gurpal was nine, his brother seven. If that doesn't uh, show courage, I don't know what does. You can move into a different country, don't even know anything about it, it's courage. Gurpal's father died in February, but his mother, Harjit Samra, lives with him. And the 87-year-old still remembers the move. She speaks mostly Punjabi, but Gurpal translates. She said when they came here, it was nice, but they were scared because there was nobody to talk to. In 1970, back in Punjab, Harjit and her husband were farmers. The pay wasn't bad, but they wanted more opportunities for their sons. And word had gotten to them that an Indian family had made a home near Livingston and had found well-paying jobs at that chicken processing plant we mentioned, Foster Farms. So they crossed the ocean. And just two days after arriving, Harjeet and her husband found themselves on the assembly line, cutting and packaging chickens. Did I mention they were vegetarian? She said she did not like working in the beginning. First three days, she didn't eat at all. They processed chickens at night, and by day, they were farm workers picking peaches. Eventually, they bought a house, then a farm, then began renting houses as landlords. They prospered. And they told friends and family about Livingston, who made the move, then told other friends and family. Now, Gurpal estimates Punjabis make up nearly a fifth of the town. Thousands of farmers, farm workers, truckers, and business owners. They built two Sikh temples known as Gurdwaras. And Harjit got to watch as her two sons grew up, went to college, and became active members of their community. She wouldn't give anything up for what she has now. And now two more generations of Samras are thriving. Gurpal has three kids, all in their 20s, and a one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter they FaceTime with every night. Gurpal's youngest daughter, Harleen, is 21 and studying to be a psychologist. Unlike her parents and grandparents, she and her siblings never had to work the fields or process chickens. I, I don't think I could handle it, which is like kind of, I guess, embarrassing to say, but I feel like it's kind of like the sacrifice they made. They did that so that, you know, me and my siblings wouldn't have to. She's grateful for the opportunity to study Spanish to work at a makeup store, to go to college. And she knows it's all because her grandparents took a leap into the abyss by coming here with no certainty about their future. I've lived such a different life that I can't even imagine that. There's one more story of courage here that I don't want to miss, and that is of Harleen's mother, Amarjeet Samra. Her marriage to Gurpal was arranged. It was 1994. He had been living here for decades, but she had only ever known India. She went to college there. Coming here was a giant leap for her, too. She was scared. And nervous, too. Yeah, my family no here, nobody. I'm lonely. 
For 20 years, she was a stay-at-home mom before getting her own job at Foster Farms. She just left it for a new job. She works early mornings at a laundromat, and she's teaching herself Spanish to communicate with the town's Latino immigrants. She actually nodded off while I was talking to Gurpal. You're talking, I'm sleeping here. (laughs) Amarjeet misses her family in India. She's only been back to visit once. But she's at home in Livingston, straddling the line between Western and Indian cultures. And she made sure her kids learned Punjabi and went to the Gurdwara. And she's so excited about having a granddaughter. Amarjeet is making sure that she learns Punjabi, too. She hugs, kisses, flying kisses. (laughs) She's so cute. For The Other California, I'm Carrie Klein in Livingston. Getting a foothold in Livingston and passing something more onto your children, that's what motivated two families who immigrated here from the Azores, Portuguese islands, to become some of the largest sweet potato farmers in the nation. Sarith Hawk met up with the next generation of farmers building on what their families started. The smell of exhaust dominates the air as race car drivers hit the track in waves. Dozens more are set up at their stations, pit crews on hand. They're all practicing for tomorrow's race day. I'm at the Madera Speedway on this Friday afternoon to meet Carlos Vieira. He's a sweet potato farmer from Livingston, but race car driving is his passion. Outside his racing trailer, he sits relaxed on a folding chair. He's waiting to suit up. This is his 15th year on the track. When I first started, I thought, okay, well, stay on the gas pedal as much as you can around the corner, and and that's the fastest way around the track. But you learn quickly that there is such a finesse when it comes to racing. Carlos has always lived a fast life, sometimes to his detriment. He actually got into racing as a way to refocus after struggling for years with a drug addiction. I was in sweet potatoes, that's all I did. I thought I was gonna be in sweet potatoes all my life, and that's all I was ever going to do. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons that maybe I struggled with staying away from drugs. But being a sweet potato farmer also grounded him. Carlos is one of three kids born to Portuguese parents, his dad originally from the Azores. Manuel Vieira moved to the U.S. to work for his uncle, Antonio Vieira Thomas, who operated a small sweet potato farm called A.V. Thomas in Merced County. In 1977, Carlos's father bought the farm from his uncle, and Carlos helped his dad all through high school. We slowly started building the company to, to the point now where the, the largest grower, packer, and seller of sweet potatoes um, in the country. Carlos runs A.V. Thomas now. The company has given him a lot of opportunities, including car racing, which he says saved his life and gave him purpose. I'm still very passionate about what I do, but I needed to do more besides growing, packing, and selling sweet potatoes. So racing, racing was a great outlet for, for you know, my, my energy. And it was through his racing that he started helping others. Shortly after his first race at the Madera Speedway, Carlos says he was approached to take part in a drive to raise money for Valley Children's Hospital. So he started a nonprofit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Today, the foundation raises money for autism, 
mental health and after-school boxing programs, as well as a series of scholarships. It's been a good complement to his day job running the Sweet Potato Company. The one thing I think that honestly keeps me most passionate about continuing down this path is the foundation. I mean, the foundation does such great work. Like Carlos, Jim Alvarez is also a sweet potato grower in Livingston and the son of an early sweet potato farmer. And while Carlos likes fast cars, Jim likes calling the sports, baseball in particular. And it's all because of his dad, whose name is on the town's baseball field. Andy, what are all those lines out in uh, Granado Alley? I meet Jim at Livingston Memorial Park, where some volunteers are trimming back the shrubs near Joe F. Alvernaz Field. I can't believe the quality of this field. It's like a putting green. We walk the wide open field and talk about Jim's family. His grandfather first came from the Azores in the early 1900s. Jim's father, Joe, died in 2013, but during his life, he was widely known as Sweet Potato Joe. Jim says his father was a World War II veteran and came back from the war to continue serving his community. He was civic-minded, Jim says, and took a special interest in baseball, organizing Little League and announcing games. My mom used to say he spent so much time in the ballpark back in the 40s and 50s, into the 60s, that she was going to bury him at home, under home plate. He's not buried here, but there is a metal cutout in right field that features a photo of Joe Alvernez smiling in his military uniform, one foot resting on a box of sweet potatoes. Since this has been here, most days if I come through town, I go around the ballpark and say hi. <laughs> hey, Pop. Every year, Jim announces a special game held in his father's honor with proceeds benefiting youth baseball in Livingston. There's even a baseball cap made for the game. The sweet potato Joe hat that you see right I'm wearing. The bright red hat and green bill underneath is hard to miss. A big white name patch stands out on the front. Sweet potato Joe. The hat, the field, and the games are a reminder of his father's spirit and his love for baseball. For The Other California, I'm Sarith Hawk in Livingston. And that's The Other California. Next week, we return to where we started, a botanical garden in the small rural town of Woodlake, for the final episode. This episode was produced by me, Alice Daniel, mixing and sound design by Rob Spate, audio assistance by Michael Sabaton, with editorial help from Polly Stryker, web support from Alex Burke, technical support from Don Weaver. Joe Moore is our president and general manager. Special thanks to the KVPR news team, Madi Bolaños, Sarith Hawk, Carrie Klein, and Kathleen Schock, and musician Omar Nuray. You've been listening to The Other California. <laughs>